Father, we thank you for worship. Father, I, I just personally am grateful for the team that gets up here Sunday after Sunday and walks us into your presence, calls us into your presence, and then leads us in song and in prayer and in confession and in assurance of pardon. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we rehearse the gospel together. We sing about the truths regarding your son, our salvation, your purpose, your plan, and I'm thankful for that. I'm also thankful, God, that we get to study together, and I pray that this time where we look at your word together would just continue your work in us that you've already begun today. And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're actually starting a new series that we'll be in for the uh, summer months, and we're going to be looking at the book of Psalms. Uh, the Psalms are very interesting, a little different than other books of the Bible. Uh, they are poems, of course. They are songs of worship and praise and thanksgiving, also of lament, uh, repentance, wisdom, covenant renewal, renewing our covenant, our trust, our walk uh, with the Lord. There are psalms of royal enthronement where the king is coming in and taking his place on the throne. All to say this, the psalms are quite diverse. If you've ever read them, you know this to be true. In the Psalms, we see people following God, connecting with God in good times, connecting with God in bad times, bringing all of their thoughts and their emotions to God regardless of their circumstances, regardless whether they are celebrating life or, quite frankly, being broken by it. The Psalms teach us to come to God honestly and to come to Him openly. So that regardless of our situation, we are growing a deeper and deeper relationship with our God. The Psalms are probably the most familiar book of the Bible, both to people who follow Jesus and to people who don't. Uh, it, it is certainly the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. One scholar uh, divides the Psalms into three different types. And I think this is actually helpful as we study the Psalms in the coming weeks. He talks about there being Psalms of orientation, disorientation, and then reorientation. He says there are many Psalms that are hymns, and these are actually Psalms of orientation. These Psalms uh, serve to praise God, thank God, express trust in God. Uh, psalm like this uh, would be Psalm 8, Psalm 19, Psalm 29, Psalm 33, 98, 100. There are many of these Psalms. Uh, psalm 8 goes like this. You can follow along. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Seems to be saying, you know, life is good <laughs> because God, you are good. 
Things are as they should be. Things are even getting better. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God, for all of your many good things that you give us. Psalms like this are actually serve the purpose of orienting us to the world that we live in. They give us important information that allows us to adjust to our surroundings and, and understand our purpose, why we're here, uh, and live lives that flourish. If you've ever taken a new job, there's usually a period of orientation when you first start that job. You're introduced to people at work. Uh, you are familiarized with policies that will be in place where you work. Uh, you are given uh, expected work procedures. You're given a tour of the facility. You're given the pay policy, the vacation policy. All the policies are put in your hands and so on. And it's all to help you orient well to your surroundings so that you can function optimally. The Psalms of Orientation describe the world as basically a mostly safe place. They describe a world that is well-ordered, it's reliable, it's a life-giving system because God, you see, because God who is good, righteous, just, and loving created it and continues to preside over it. And therefore, we can live a life that's confident, it's secure, it's peaceful, it's safe. So, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, Psalm 8 helps to orient us to some of the basic realities about this world in which we live. It tells us that God created this world. He created us. He created everything in it. It tells us that God is just and good and that God will punish his foes, those who do evil. He has made man and he has given us a role in his creation that quite frankly is just glorious. The psalmist says he has crowned us with glory and honor. He's given us a royal task to rule over the things that he created. And this is a psalm of praise that orients us, you see, to the world that we live in. Life is good. It's good because God is good. And life, I expect, will get better. That's sort of the undertone of this psalm. But as we said, there are other kinds of psalms as well. Uh, take Psalm 109, for example, just the, the first 15 verses. In Psalm 109, we read this. O God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. For wicked and deceitful men have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Appoint an evil man to oppose him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tired, let him be found, when he is tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Boom! <laughs> wow. <laughs> Oof. 
When was the last time you prayed that prayer? (laughs) When was the last time we read that in worship? That's a whole different kind of psalm right there, isn't it? That's a psalm of disorientation. It's a psalm of individual lament as well as something we call an imprecatory psalm. You're praying for God to bring justice on an enemy. And there are lots of these psalms. And I do mean a lot. There's Psalm 3, 5, 6, 7, 13, 17, 22, 25, 26, 27, uh, 28, 31, 35, 38, 39, 42, 43, 80, 83, 86, 109, 120, 130. Hut! (laughs) Point is, there's a lot of them. And that might surprise you might surprise you to find out that that is the most, numerous, the, the most numerous kind of psalm that we have, psalms of disorientation. And these psalms express this disorientation that the people of ancient Israel felt at various times in their history. They seem to ask God, you know, why is this happening? What, what is going on, God? Why, why aren't you rescuing me? And what is remarkable is, even though the, the Hebrew title for this book, the book of Psalms, is Talim, meaning book of praises, actually there are more psalms of lament and disorientation than there are psalms of orientation and praise. Have you ever picked up a book with a title that looked good to you and you started reading the book, but as you got into it, you realized, dang, what's the title got to do with this book? <laughs> You're surprised to discover that there's a discontinuity with the title. Well, that's part of the tension here with the Hebrew title, Book of Praises. And that tension right there tells us something, actually. It tells us that as we think about connecting with Almighty God, the God who made everything, connecting with Him is going to be a process that happens mostly in the midst of life's disorientations. The path to deeper connectedness to God, deeper relationship with Him, deeper surrender, deeper trust is through the valley of the shadow of death and sorrow and difficulty. That's just how life and spirituality work in this sinful, fallen world. You see, these psalms of disorientation, they reflect real problems, real tension, real difficulties in our lives, real times of anguish, real times of pain, real times of alienation, real times of suffering. These psalms simply acknowledge that everything is not okay. Not at all. Not in me. Not in the world in which I live. Uh, there, there is this untamed darkness both in us and outside of us, a brokenness that is undeniable by anyone. There is evil in the world and evil in me. And part of the beauty and the healing balm of the Psalms is that they simply reflect, re- reflect that reality. Life can be at times chaotic and confusing. Despite the fact that God is our maker, God is good, God is just, God loves us. 
And so to value any of the Psalms, even the, the Psalms of orientation, we need a kind of a bigger picture, a bigger context. And so the book of Psalms, you see, are not simply happy songs. They're not simply songs to cheer us up. They're not songs of religious prattling or platitudes. They're real songs written in the midst of real life. And sometimes, unfortunately, what passes for Christian piety or godliness is really little more than Christian pretending. It's sentimental spirituality. And that kind of thing, frankly, is not very helpful, never is. It's certainly not very real. It's spiritually, it's a spirituality that's designed to sort of be like a sedative, a painkiller, right? A way of denying that I'm in pain. Christian platitudes to help make our pain go away, but really they don't make the pain go away. The Psalms teach us that when difficulties arise, they are there for a purpose, always for a purpose. God needs to use them to drive us to deeper and deeper understandings of ourselves, understandings of our idols, the things we pursue, the things we think we've got to have, and also a deeper understanding of him. The Psalms introduce us to a God who does not take our problems away. He invites us to trust him as he joins us in the midst of our problems. The Psalms warn us against chirpy, shallow spirituality where we want quick resolutions to all of our problems. You won't find those songs or those prayers in the book of Psalms. The Psalms tell us that if we want genuine, deep relationship with God, that will only come in the context of dealing with real life stuff. That's the message of the Psalms of disorientation. We can't deny the pain of life. We can't cover it up. We can't pretend to live as if it doesn't exist around us and inside us. Instead... We must choose to seek God in the midst of all the disorientation of life. Truth is, our tears, our anger, our frustrations, our hurts are almost always symptoms or signs that something is wrong with our souls. Something is tearing us up. Pain, anxiety, fear, resentment, Anger, all these things should alert us to the fact that we are in a state of disorientation, like it or not. Years ago, I read a story about a little girl. Her name was Ashlyn. I think I read this in Reader's Digest. And uh, it was a fascinating story. Ashlyn was born with a very unusual genetic abnormality that didn't allow her body to experience pain of any kind. Uh, and that meant that Ashlyn was always in great danger from the time she was very little right on into uh, teen, teenage uh, years. And she would damage her own body without even knowing it. As a little girl, she would bite her, her fingers and bite through to the bone because she, she just couldn't feel any pain. She would chew uh, on her hands and, and, and cut the flesh and not have any pain signals which would say, stop, you know. Uh, she stuck her hand in boiling water one time because a spoon fell in and she wanted to get the spoon out and she burned herself, as you well uh, can imagine, very badly. And she would fall and bump her head and not know until days later that she had pretty seriously injured herself. 
And Ashley was born without the ability to feel what you and I feel pretty much every day. And as you get older, every minute. At first, that sounds like a good thing. No pain. <laughs> Who wants to sign up for that? Me. No pain. But this little girl suffered greatly simply because she could feel no pain. As you can imagine, her parents were terrified all the time, never wanted to let her out of their sight for fear of what might happen. Her physician said this, and I quote, her life story offers an amazing snapshot of how complicated a life can get without the guidance of pain. Pain is a gift, and she doesn't have it, end quote. Now, friends, the point I want to make is just that this is spiritually true as well. You see, in our faith journey, as we do life with God, our experience of emotional or physical or spiritual pain is actually a gift, a gift from God. It's meant, uh, it is something that is meant to drive us to God. And if we don't acknowledge our pain, if we suppress it, if we go around denying it instead of dealing with it with God's help, then we are destined to remain very superficial, artificial uh, individuals. We're destined not to grow. You see, these psalms of disorientation are meant to help us process our stuff. They're meant to direct us to God with our stuff. And uh, if we have the courage to read these psalms, to use these psalms, when we are disoriented over time, that is how we will grow. That is how we know ourselves really well. What's going on inside me? Why am I thinking? Why am I feeling this way? That is how we discover, too, that God is sufficient for whatever I happen to be wrestling with. That is how we learn that he can do remarkable work in our souls through the disorientation. Two things we learn from the Psalms of disorientation. First, when pain comes... You simply have to give voice to it. In the Psalms of Lament, there are unutterable words, unthinkable thoughts that are expressed in these Psalms. There are desperate, angry voices and cries of anger, uh, of anguish and rage. Uh, there are seemingly uh, unedifying outbursts that, mind you, the Holy Spirit inspired. Why? Why would the Holy Spirit inspire things like that? Well, for you and for me and for anyone and everyone that's going to experience the real disorientation of life. It's so that we would know what to do with the pain and where to go with it. Psalm 58, uh, the psalmist is talking about his enemies. He's got a lot of enemies, and they're killing him. And this is what he says. He says to the Lord, break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Tear out, O Lord, the fangs of the lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows be blunted like a slug melting away as it moves along like a stillborn child. May they not see the sun. Question, parents, what would you do with your child if he or she said something like that about someone at school? Might be a little shocked. You might sit your child down and 
kind of explain to them how bad it is to say those things and to feel that way. I mean, that's wrong. It flies in the face of what Jesus says when he says, love your enemies. But the truth is, we have all felt those kinds of things, whether we've said them out loud or not, or prayed them or not. When somebody hurts us deeply or betrays our trust, or they abandon us, or they gossip, or they slandered against us, uh, we felt those things. Eugene Peterson says this, and I quote, he says, in order for us to love our enemies, we must first pray out our hatred. I think there's some wisdom in that. In other words, pray what you're really thinking first. Deal with what's really going on first. Pretending that it's not there won't get you to the place of loving your enemies. Remember Jesus' words? He said this one time. He said, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Well, that phrase, loses their life, is an interesting little phrase. What does that mean? Loses their life for my sake. Well, I'll tell you this. No matter what you might think it means, it certainly means losing resources or losing power or losing position or losing face or losing friends for Jesus' sake. Whatever it means, at the very least, it's certainly referring to a period of disorientation in our lives. And if that's true, then Jesus is saying whoever goes through periods of disorientation and difficulty, loss or confusion, hardship for my sake will find life. And if that's true, I think Jesus is saying you want real connection from the Father because that's where life is. You want real connection with the Father? Well, that happens during those times of disorientation. And so just to be clear, followers of Jesus are never removed or protected from difficulties or crises or disorientations of life. And therefore, our communication with God requires vigorous, candid, daring conversations. We must give voice to our pain when it's there. And that's what we see the psalmist doing. Again and again and again and again and again, giving voice to their pain. Candidly, vigorously, daringly to God. Now, a second thing that the Psalms of disorientation teach us, and that is to direct our voice of lament, complaint, directly to God. Uh, this feels to most of us like a prayer we should never pray. <laughs> like, like, really? Should I really do that? In fact, it, this is a style without parallel or precedence in ancient times uh, when the book of Psalms was being written. In the ancient world, there's not another group of people besides the Hebrew people uh, who would have dared speak to their gods in such a manner. Why? Well, because uh, everyone speaking to their gods was looking to get something. It was always quid pro quo. If I do something from this God, then I can get this God to give me something I desperately want. But in the Psalms of Lament, uh, th there was no thinking ahead of time about how to address God politely, if you will about how to make what they were thinking sound acceptable. 
It was just raw, in-the-moment communication, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit. God, I am so hurt. I am so confused. I am so angry. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm feeling. And frankly, that is always a good starting point when you're in a place of disorientation. The writers of Psalms believe that whatever a person was thinking, whatever a person was feeling should be brought directly to God. Not toned down, not tidied up. They did not believe Yahweh had delicate sensibilities. They did not for a second believe that he didn't already know what was going on in here. They did not think that God was someone to whom you could not discuss certain things. It's almost like Jesus says in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Talk to him about his fault. Just between the two of you, if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Now, here's the thing. God never sins against us. It's just that sometimes when we perceive our circumstances, we're just so confused. It, it sometimes feels that way. Why is this happening, God? It's almost like the psalm writers were confused, they were hurt, they were angry, and so they were practicing sort of a Matthew 18 with God. God, I don't get this. I don't understand what's going on. I don't get why this is happening to me. And so I have this offense that I want to bring and lay before you, God. Explain yourself. And so they would take that directly to him. Psalm 22, for example. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Had God forsaken them? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Friends, that was Jesus' prayer in Matthew 27. I think God loves truthful prayers. And he always knows, doesn't he, before we pray, how much we hurt, how lonely, how angry, how confused we happen to be. The truth is, real spiritual transformation doesn't happen unless we practice that kind of truthful praying. That really is where communication with God has to start. And then your communication will probably evolve. It won't stay there. But it has to start in honest places. So question... What would your version of that prayer be, if you could be really honest? Is there anything you ought to be talking to God about, ought to be saying to God, but you've been afraid to go there? You've been afraid to give voice to it. Friends, that's where you've got to go. That's where heart transformation begins. God, why this? Why this sickness? Why this unending suffering? Why this wheelchair? Why, why, why no job, God? Why? Why no children? Or why the children I have? <laughs> why can't I ever make any friends, God? Why, why is my marriage so incredibly, incredibly hard, so awful? Why? Maybe something that would be helpful to us 
would be to actually write out our prayers of disorientation to God sometimes because eventually we all have them. And uh, we can either let distance grow between us and God because there are just certain things we're afraid to discuss with Him, afraid to talk to Him about. There are certain things also we might be afraid to listen to Him about. Or we can do what the psalm writers did. We can direct our voice to God. We can take our words of pain directly to him. We can say, Lord, I have to start with you. I don't, I don't understand this, God. I don't understand my situation. I don't understand what's churning in me. I, I don't know why this is happening. I, I don't know if, if I can cope with this. I'm angry. I'm hurt. I'm confused. And so, God, I am talking to you. Psalm 88, the psalmist says this, he says, You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord. Every day I spread out my hands to you. Or how about Psalm 39? David says this to God. He's so worn out, so exhausted, so tired. He says, look away from me that I may rejoice again. In other words, I'll be happy, God, but only when you turn away from me and stop paying attention to me. He's blaming God for these circumstances that are going on in his life. You see, these writers of, of, of Psalms, who again have been inspired by the Holy Spirit, they show us that God does not cringe or move away, or recoil, but rather he invites us to these conversations. Because here's the deal. There is always, eventually, in disorientation, a kind of place that we get to where surrender happens. Death happens. And that leads us to a third kind of psalm, which is on the other side of disorientation. It's reorientation. It's what comes when we grow through the disorientation. It's a wholeness and a healing that comes through the brokenness. We have examples of these psalms where the whole community of Israel praised them. Or sometimes it's just an individual giving thanks to God, giving praise to God. God, thank you for seeing me through this crisis. God, thank you for not leaving me. God, thank you for who I've become through this process, expressing reorientation toward God. Uh, once the crisis is resolved, faith uh, was in question, but now, now things are good again. And there are lots of these kinds of Psalms too. Psalm 18, Psalm 30, Psalm 32, 34, 41, 67, 92, 116, 118, 124, 129, 138, and a whole bunch more. Psalms of reorientation. It was about 12 years ago, um, my mother was dying. She had had actually several strokes, and the last stroke that she had was, was quite severe. And that stroke left her non-communicative, um, paralyzed on one side, mostly paralyzed. 
And I would fly home to Indiana to visit my mom each month. And uh, she would look at me and it would be with this really painful expression, confused expression. Sometimes she looked really frustrated to me like there was something she wanted to say but couldn't. I had the sense sometimes that she knew who I was. Other times, wasn't too sure that she did know who I was. And my mother was in that state for six months in a nursing home before she passed away. And every time I'd fly out to visit her, it was incredibly disorienting. I hated, and I mean hated, seeing her that way. I hated not being able to talk to her. I hated her being in a nursing home. I hated that she couldn't walk, she couldn't eat, she couldn't feed herself. I hated the smell of that nursing home. I hated that she lived so far away. I hated having to manage her estate and make decisions for her that I thought she should be making. I hated that she was probably never going to get better. I hated the whole thing. And I, by the grace of God, began to pour out my frustration and anger and hatred and all of this uh, in a journal just to kind of keep track, keep some sense of balance through it all. Because all of it, I mean every little piece of it just felt so wrong. And it was in the process of journaling that it occurred to me vividly that I wasn't the only one who hated this. So did God. My God hated this. God hates sickness. And he hates estrangement, and he hates sin, and he hates death, and he hates the whole process of dying. In fact, that's exactly why Jesus came to earth. You see, this world is not the way it's supposed to be, is it? There's not supposed to be hunger. There's not supposed to be war. There's not supposed to be hatred or disease or sickness or strokes. God did not make the world to have disorienting struggles. Those struggles have all come into us and into our world because the world is broken. We are broken because of this thing called sin, this thing called evil. And Jesus came to do something about all of this, understand. That was his mission. That was his life. That was the cross. It's very interesting to me that Jesus, too, had to deal with all kinds of disorientation in his life. He dealt with people misunderstanding him all the time. He dealt with all kinds of rejection, all kinds of betrayal from family members, from people in power, from friends. Even the night before he died, he was processing with his heavenly father, his feelings and his fears and his thoughts. 
And it's helpful to me to see that Jesus knew to take his disorientation directly to his heavenly father. And what I'd tell you is that my disorientation with my mom uh, was just the beginning. When my mom passed away, my brother then died one week later. And when that was done, and that was years ago, you know, uh, that was disconcerting enough. But then just a few years ago, my sister, Alice, died when a car was racing down a, a country lane and she was gathering trash with her granddaughter and this car hit her and launched her a hundred feet in the air and she died instantly. Talk about disorientation. All of that stuff. Disorienting. But here's the thing. Eventually, after processing through those things with God, it also led me to reorientation. A place where I could see God definitely at work in me. And I could see that God cared for me, cared for my brother, and even cared for my sister who loved the Lord very much. God cares for us so much that he sent his son to die in our place. And all through all of that, all the things I experienced, I, I grew emotionally and I, I grew spiritually. It was a process. And stuff like that, stuff that made no sense to me whatsoever at the time, eventually made, I'll just say, some sense. Some sense. I could see a little bit of what God was up to. He actually used bad stuff to accomplish some good things. Certainly in me. And just like he did with the disciples, it's no different. <laughs> Do you think the disciples understood more of what God was up to after the resurrection? And you see that right there, trusting through disorientation is frankly how faith grows. Faith doesn't grow magically. Our faith doesn't grow by removing disorientation. Faith grows from going back and forth in life between disorientation and reorientation, basically until the day you die. In that constant process, God takes you deeper and deeper and deeper into understanding both your nature and His. He also gives us some sense and some understanding of, of his mission. You see, understand one day his mission is to fix all of it. And the Psalms of orientation and disorientation and reorientation are just songs, real songs for real life. They are given to us as gifts to help us process all the good. And all the bad. And everything in between with him. Amen. I want us to end by reading together a psalm of reorientation. This is Psalm 30 and the words will be on the screen and I'll let you be seated. You can just read these words with me and then I'll close this in prayer. 
Psalm 30, verse 1 says, I will, and you can read with me, I will exalt you, O Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. O Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit. Sing to the Lord, you saints of his. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. O Lord, when you favored me, you made my mountains stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What gain is there in my destruction, in my going down into the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you can turn our wailing into dancing. That you can remove our sackcloth and you can clothe us with joy. Father, give us the courage in difficult times to recognize your work in the hidden parts of our souls. Rather than covering up our hurt, our pain with pleasantries, pleasant words that we feel we need to say or other people need to hear, may you give us the courage to open up and give voice to them and to direct them to you. May we learn from the psalmist. You are a strong God. Lord, we know that the words we utter to you do not make a dent in your goodness, but you listen with patience and with kindness even when we offer to you psalms of lament. God, we pray that you would give us grace to be a community where people can wrestle, where people can be free to speak their doubts and their struggles, and be encouraged to bring those struggles boldly to you. And in doing so, find relationship with you, Father. For that is what we long for, and that is what we need. Amen.